Hello, everyone. Welcome to the I Know Lonely podcast from Only 7 Seconds. I am your host, Luke Wall. Today, we have a holiday bonus episode with Kaylee Cron. Kaylee is passionate about grief and has years of experience supporting people in their walk through grief. Kaylee has over 10 years of experience in social work, supporting individuals, families, and communities. She has worked as an adult behavioral health clinician, infant mental health clinician, and grief counselor. Kaylee is currently the community outreach liaison at Pathlight ERC, one of Only 7 Seconds annual partners. Pathlight has been a fantastic advocate and partner of Only 7 Seconds and have featured some of Only 7 Seconds storytellers on their platforms. Specifically, you can hear more of Kaya's story on Pathlight's Mental Note podcast. Pathlight, thank you for being such a great partner to Only 7 Seconds. Today, Kaylee and I get to have a conversation about grief. While it may not be the most exciting topic to hear about, grief is something that is important to address because there's such a strong correlation between loneliness and grief. In this episode, Kaylee shares practical advice on how to support someone grieving, how to grieve yourself, and how to support your own child to process grief someday. You also might be asking why a grief episode right before the holidays? Well, while the holidays can be a magical time of year, it isn't always for everyone. Many of us have experienced loss of a loved one or have some sort of grief associated with the holidays. So I thought it was important to recognize this and allow those of you grieving or experiencing loss this holiday season to be seen and feel supported. I hope that some of this practical advice is helpful and you feel a little bit less alone in your holidays. Before we dive in, this episode does contain conversations around loss of a loved one, grief, car accidents, loneliness, hospice, eating recovery, and behavioral and mental health. This episode may not be appropriate for some listeners. Without further ado, here's Kaylee. Thank you for joining me, Kaylee. I appreciate you being on. Thanks so much for having me, Luke. Yeah. Well, to get started, I would love for you to just introduce yourself, who you are, and a little bit about your yourself and your background. I always feel like that's such a big ask because like, <laughs> <laughs> for today, um, I am a community outreach liaison for um, Eating Recovery Center and Pathlight Mood and Anxiety Center. And so what that means is my main role is to support the alumni who discharge from our services, whether that's eating recovery or mood and anxiety, and just make sure that they have all the tools that they need to um, ensure that they feel supported throughout their recovery journey. Um, I also, my favorite part of my role is the support that I provide to our nonprofit partners. So I have the amazing privilege of partnering with groups like Only 7 Seconds and so many around the West Coast. So California, Washington, I personally live in North Idaho, and then I just found out I support Hawaii. So I'm really, you know, curious about the nonprofits I can support there. Um, but we get to put on programming that supports our alumni, families, and greater community. So really just amplifying the message of any nonprofit. So that that's is awesome. what I do for Eating Recovery Center and Pathway. That's That's awesome. And tell me, so for Eating Recovery Center, just give the audience an idea of like who they are and like what they... The, I know you mentioned Eating Recovery and Behavioral Health, but what is it specifically that they do? 
So Eating Recovery Center primarily is an inpatient services for individuals um, going through eating recovery. So whether they have anorexia or um, binge or anything in between, and then ones that are kind of under-recognized like ARFID, um, anything where people are really struggling with their food, their weight, and making sure that they get stabilized and are able to discharge and then do any kind of like outpatient. We have um, a virtual intensive outpatient now, which is really great, especially for people who are like mothers who reasonably do not feel comfortable leaving their children for any period of time. They're able to do their recovery at home, which is Mm. so powerful. Um, And then once discharged from the really high acuity, we're able to do support groups, outpatient, um, and then really get them online with therapist, a dietitian, and all of those kind of things. Wow. And this is all across the U.S., correct? It is. Yeah. It was founded in Denver, Colorado, but now we're just about everywhere and especially virtually. Our virtual IOP is in, I want to say like 20 something states right now. And we're really hoping to have it in all 50 states. Wow. That's awesome. And uh, tell tell me just a little bit about your personal self. Um, you're married. You have a kid. Tell me just a little bit about your your personal side too, as well. Well, my um, my personal life is I always feel like is so intermixed with my professional passions, and that's probably like the worker being me always feeling like I have to have some kind of purpose that brings an income. But genuinely, um, I really have a passion for grief work. I was a grief counselor for about seven years at a local hospice organization. um, And I really grew incredibly passionate about grief work simply because you can't not when you're bearing witness to so many stories. And so while I am a wife and a mother, I also always identify as a fellow griever and somebody who really wants to, you know, change the way we relate to and understand grief. Um, It's a huge, huge part of my life. I do grief coaching. I love to speak on grief and um, just about anybody that I talk to, we go pretty deep just by default of that's my comfortability with conversation. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, that's really why I wanted to have you on the podcast today is really specifically around your work with grief. And, um, you, you're, you're almost a, what I would say, like a grief expert, right? Like someone who really knows grief well. Um, and it, it's unique. I don't think a lot of people, um, not a lot of people enjoy leaning into grief. Um, I don't I think that's a really common thing. It is the most uncommon thing in our culture. And I could talk to you for eight hours about that. Um, But in reference to being an expert on grief, I really have to challenge that. You know, grief is such a unique experience, like a snowflake. Every single person's experience Mm. in grief is so vastly different that you can learn everything you want to know about what grief looks like, how to support it, how to work through it. You can do treatment modalities. You can do talk therapy. You can do anything. But at the end of the day, you are going to be challenged in grief with every single client that you see. And then personally, when you have loss in your own life, if you see yourself as a grief expert, you're going to automatically assume it's going to be easy for you. And it genuinely is probably harder because Mm -hmm. you know the best thing to do. But as a human being that lives in a grief avoidant culture, you're going to lean away because we just don't have time to do this. So 
you know, I, I'm passionate about grief and I always say I bring a great grief perspective, but I am not an expert. Okay. So I have two questions for you then. First of all, tell, tell me a little bit more because I think that's so beautiful, but you do have experience in supporting grief. So tell me a little bit about your experience in supporting grief or grief. I don't know if you would call it recovery or the process of grief, um, but what it tell me just a little bit more prior to uh, working with Pathlight um, and ERC, what was some of your work that you did in grief? Yeah. So I would refer to it as a grief journey because there's yeah. really no you know, destination that we get to, but rather we're just moving through it, um, all the time. Mm -hmm. But I was, I had such a blessing to work under Dr. Alan Wolfelt, who founded the companioning model of grief, which just basically says, I'm not the expert of your grief. You are. So tell me what you're going through and let's walk together. Um, so it really puts the griever in control of their grief process in their grief journey and and kind of guiding what we do and how we support. Some people need a lot or they they feel like they want a lot of education. Um, and so I'll give them all of the things. I'll, I'll give them education on what grief might look like and the, the kind of journey we go down and what they may or may not experience. And that seems helpful to them. And others really need a lot of validation and normalization. And so I can give them that. But I always start every session just open to understanding that individual person's process. Mm, that's awesome. Why? And then the second question I kind of had, um, you mentioned a minute ago, you said you're passionate about grief. And I just, I'm curious to unpack that a little bit. Like why, why is it that Kaylee specifically is so passionate about grief? Yeah. Um, well, as I said, I'm a fellow griever and I think that takes a lot or it used to take a lot out of me to admit that because as, um, originally as a social worker, um, I found myself feeling like I'm the helper. And so if I can help people, then I feel purposeful, but asking for help and getting support from others felt like a huge inconvenience to them. And so I put on a lot of armor to say that I'm really strong and I'm, um, I don't need any help. And it really came to a head when I lost my boyfriend, we went to college together. Um, we moved in together after college and planned a life together and he died in a car accident. Mm. And I was in my master's program for social work. And I really got busy with my education and I didn't let his loss touched me at all. And it became incredibly lonely because if anyone asked me, how are you doing? My grief was right here. Like if I opened up a little bit, I knew that there would just be a floodgate. And so I finally used my works EAP program, which is an employee assistance program that many places have. And I have a lot of feelings about it, but I went to see a counselor who said that she was um, a grief counselor. And I told her my story and I said, um, and I was really, really vulnerable. Like I really put it all out on the table. And I said, I just don't want to feel this way anymore. I'm in so much pain. Um, I just want this to be over. And she laughed at me and she said, oh, your generation just wants everything to go by so fast, don't you? And I immediately like shut back down. And I did not talk about my grief for probably two and a half years after that point. And 
it again, it just was so isolating and it overwhelmed me. Um, and a lot of times people will spend a lot of like their early grief, just avoiding it. Like they'll get super busy. They'll say they're okay. Um, and they're not okay. And it wasn't until I was able to study under Alan Wolfelt. Um, I spent a week in Colorado in Fort Collins at the center for loss. And it was such a gift because I was going to learn these clinical skills on how to help others in grief. All the while I'm suffering on the inside, thinking that if I could help others, it would help me. Unfortunately, that's just not how it works and turned into a wounded healer situation. Um, and so when I went to the center for loss, we all were professionals and Alan Wolfelt knows that people who work in the grief profession have a personal experience with loss. And so we all had to introduce ourselves and say what our loss was. And for me, I couldn't say it out loud. Like I just couldn't tell people what happened because it hurt so bad. And again, it was just here for three years, like drowning me. And it was the second to last day. I was the last one to share. And he's like, you haven't shared yet. And he could obviously see just this like genuine pain. Um, and I said, uh, my boyfriend died in a car accident and he like, he went from a teacher to a counselor in a moment and he got down to my level and his compassion and the empathy that he just conveyed in his energy of like, I'm here with you right now. Um, and he asked, what is his name? And I told him his name is Shane. How did he die? He died in a car accident. He validated. He said that had to have been so hard. I, I can't imagine the pain that you must be feeling. And just that the being seen and being understood without having to say much was the most healing thing that I've ever experienced. And I got on the phone with my husband. I was married at this point. Like <laughs> I was grieving the loss of someone so enormous in my life while building a life with somebody else. I'm crying on the phone with my husband and he just told me a couple days later when I was home, he said, Kaylee, I've just never heard you sound so relieved. Mm. And so it became my most driving passion to help people feel the way that I felt that day and every day moving forward. Because once you let it be seen and heard, it takes some of that weight away. And it allowed me to start opening up to others and um, accepting support because I really needed it. Wow. I, I am, I have so many thoughts <laughs> and I think there's so many different directions that I could take this conversation, but just, first of all, I mean, I, I am sorry too, that you went through that. It's, um, it, it's awful. And I, I think that, um, just my own experience with grief and hearing other people's experiences with grief, like it doesn't, uh, it doesn't end necessarily. Right. And even now talking about it, it, there's still going to be pain there. And so I just want to acknowledge that. Um, I'm sorry that you've experienced that. And, um, I, I have a, a personal kind of question to ask, first of all, and this is, uh, I'm just curious because I, I've experienced grief. Right. And I think that, I think anyone that's listening to this would be remiss if they said, no, we, I haven't experienced grief. I think everyone has probably, um, if they're willing to admit it. 
And if you haven't, then you've lived a very blessed life and you will someday. Um, and, uh, I had an unofficial uh, counseling session or therapy session recently. And one of the things that was told to me, because I, I, I resonate so closely and deeply with your story of just your response to it, where, um, the way I respond, I'm a doer. I'm someone who gets stuff done and I make myself busy and I, I, do great things. And I just, I do life and I move forward and I don't take time in good or bad. I don't take time to reflect. I don't take time to celebrate wins. I don't take time to grieve. And, uh, and so one of the things that was told to me was, um, she called it frozen grief. And I don't know if that's a technical term or not. Um, but it was something that just stood out to me in that moment of hearing like you have frozen grief where there was grief from years prior that I had not even taken the time to grieve at all. Um, and so I just, I don't know if that's a technical term or not, but just that idea, even for me of like, it's grief that was frozen. That's sitting there that, like you said, it's sitting right here. And for those listening, Kaylee was pointing to her chin, basically, um, of where her grief was sitting, waiting to bubble up. And I think, um, just that imagery for me of like frozen grief, um, really resonated with me when that was presented to me in that way of like, this is still sitting there. You haven't taken the time to grieve and time doesn't just make that grief go away. Um, so I don't know if you have any thoughts around that, but it was just for me that that really resonated with my own personal story when you shared that, um, because that that seems to be how I I responded to my own situations of grief, too. Yeah. And I think the idea of frozen grief is really interesting. And if it helped you to kind of see it that way, like but for me, my grief felt like it was on fire in my mm. body all the time. You know, I've worked with people who lost a child 10 years prior and spent 10 years in active addiction to kind of get away. You know, I think grief is still happening, whether we're allowing it to or not. And so I think that any concept that makes your personal experience validated is helpful. Um, I've never heard frozen grief. So I think that's really cool. Um, I, I love just like imagery is so important in grief because, um, we, we just don't understand it in our culture because we don't talk about it. We don't address it. We really avoid it at all costs. And so the more ways that we can kind of explain it, depending on a person or a situation that helps them kind of see that perspective and, and make a difference or make a change in how they're processing it is amazing. That's awesome. That I love your approach to this because while I'm sure there's plenty of clinical work that goes into the work that you do with grief, it's just so I think meaningful that the things you even talked about with your own experience um, with Doctor. I'm blanking on the name that you you said his name Wolfelt. from color. What was that? Wolfelt. Wolfelt. Um, like in his response to your grief, it was like, I heard you say a couple of things and it wasn't that he had all the clinical answers, right? It wasn't that he had like this perfect process for you to go through, or he had all the right answers or that he made you see it a certain way. Um, it was that he was there. Yeah. Right. Like, and I just, I, to me, that's so beautiful because it's relevant to all of us. Like, even if you're not a professional and I, we talk about this a lot in a lot of the work we do with only seven seconds. And we, I talk about this on other podcasts too. Of like we have a shirt that says show up, be kind, love well. Right. And like, that's so relevant. I think to this where 
simply just being there and present and allowing someone to be seen, to be heard. Um, I just, I love your approach to that um, and hearing your own experience with that. I think that that makes it so relevant for people that are on the supporting side of someone going through grief and how, even if you don't have all the right answers, because no one does, you can still just by being there, um, by showing that person that you care about them, how meaningful and impactful that can be. Yeah. I, I always say supporting somebody in grief is the most human thing that you can do. Like having a master's in social work and a certification in grief counseling helps me get access to grievers. But in absence of compassion and actually compassionate curiosity, you're just doing talk therapy. And that isn't always helpful because you don't need to be pathologized in grief. You don't need a diagnosis for grief to know that you're hurting and you don't need a degree to understand how to help somebody. And I think that that is a huge barrier to just the general public supporting each other in grief is that they think like they're supposed to know how to do it. Um, And I always say like my biggest goal is to work myself out of a job because grief counselors are only necessary because our loved ones feel so ill-equipped to care for us when in reality, they're the most equipped people. Mm. Do you have some practical advice or things that um, that would, I guess, help equip someone or that you would want to say to people that would help if they are the ones supporting in grief? Like, what are some of those things that um, if you were to work yourself out of a job, what would what would that what would the things be that you'd want to share with people um, that would get to that point, I guess? Yeah, I think the number one thing is showing up. Um, and I don't mean like just showing up on their door because when p- people hear me say <laughs> show up, they're like, oh, I would hate that. And I'm like, no, like showing up presently, like organizing a time to get together and showing up um, open to however the conversation may unfold. The next is willingness to sit with uncomfortable information. Um, Grievers go through some pretty deep, deep sadness that I think is really hard for someone who loves them to watch. There were days when I wondered, like, do I want to stay on this planet without him? And that was a real question I had to ask myself repeatedly. And when I told my sister, who's my primary, you know, uh, confidant, that, that was devastating to her. Um, And so what would have helped me is if she didn't show (laughs) just how devastating that statement was to her, because I was just speaking my heart. Um, And so allowing for that openness of like, say whatever you need to say, because it obviously needs to come out of your body. It needs to come out and be witnessed. And then another piece is um, you know, you, you mentioned that you're kind of like a fix, like, how do I, I'm grieving. So now what are the steps I need to take to kind of get it done? Um, we all do that and we do it to each other in grief. And so the, the idea of allowing things to just be what they are without feeling a desire or a compulsion to fix it for the person, um, there's nothing you can do or say that is going to make my pain 
go away. Like you can't say, oh, he's in a better place. He's not in pain anymore. Um, He wouldn't want you to be sad. These are things that we call platitudes that are the least helpful, most surface level support that we can offer people to say, your pain makes me uncomfortable. So I'm going to say something that will make me feel better and make me feel like I've supported you, but in essence, shut down this conversation. So those kind of automatic fixes of like making a positive out of a negative can be really offensive to grievers. And it almost always doesn't help. So staying away from platitudes that kind of soften the pain because you can't do that. Um, And then my favorite tool that I did not learn in any kind of school, but I learned at the Center for Loss was compassionate curiosity. And that is asking questions, not to like know, like not to gossip. It's not to like get all the information so you can report it back to your your best friend or your partner, but rather a compassionate curiosity of asking questions, not necessarily for you to get information, but for them to be able to say it out loud. So whether or not you already know the answers to those questions, just saying like, when did you find out? How did you feel when you found out that he died? How did you find out that he died? How did that feel for you? You know, what, and just kind of wondering about their experience from start to finish is so powerful because the more times we tell our story, the less power it has over our emotions and the more we're able to kind of create this narrative of what happened. So as the griever, I can do that in my head, but it's going to be painted with a whole lot of emotions and difficulty. And I'm not always able to get from start to finish and paint a clear picture. So the more someone can sit with me as the griever and just ask questions, and then I share that experience, it helps kind of tell the story for myself too, and process through that. I love that phrase and I'm going to find places to use it of compassionate curiosity. It it's, I feel like it's so relevant both in grief and all throughout part walks of life, right? Like if I think if we all lived a life with more compassionate curiosity in the relationships we have from marriage to our children, to our friends, like it would just lead to better conversations, better dialogue, better relationships. Like, I think that's relevant even outside of grief. Um, but I just, I, I think that's, yeah, I don't have words to say how I'm feeling about that right now. Cause I just think it's so wonderful. So you mentioned platitudes prior to compassionate curiosity. And I'm, it's just interesting. Like I, I think you're spot on, on how we, we say these things to make ourselves feel better and not the griever. And I think that's really important to call out and recognize. And yet it's something that we, as like, that's so common through society, right? Like that's just like, that is how we naturally want to respond as humans is to fix it. Um, and it's really hard to, um, change just your natural human response to something like you want to make, like, if I care about Kaylee and she's grieving, I want to fix it for her. Like, and it's so hard and it feels against like everything I am as a person to not try to fix it or not try to make you feel better. Um, that just, it feels very uncomfortable to sit in that. 
Yes, because we are programmed to fix a problem. Like, like you're sad. Here's a coping skill to help you get happy. Like that's literally something I learned in social work is how to create coping skills for kids so that when they're sad, you help them feel happy instead. And like, it's just this thing that is compulsive to us because we're taught like sad and grief, um, anger, guilt, those things that we feel so naturally are bad. And what would happen if instead of like naming it as this bad thing that we've got to reframe and make good to just sit with it and wonder about it? I think getting curious about our harder emotions can help us get to a deeper understanding of why we have to feel that way. Like every single sad emotion, hard emotion, difficult emotion that we feel it has a purpose. And so if we just are like, oh, no, can't look at that. That's that's a bad one. Let's get happy. Um, mm. Then we're kind of cutting off like a deeper understanding of ourselves. And when we do that to others, we're cutting off a deeper understanding to the person that we are trying to support. And it's the biggest misstep that is founded in a genuine love for that person. And I always have to, I, I feel compelled to remind grievers that like you have unlocked a new level of depth and others around you will need help in like getting down in there with you because it's scary. Like there are so many reasons people say platitudes, but it's really centered around a love for the person that they're trying to support and a fear of ever being in that person's situation. Wow. Um, I I have so many thoughts about all these different things that you're sharing. And I have so many ways I could take the direction. But the one thing that's coming to mind, and there must be a reason, is you, you are um, a fairly new parent. And I just... I think that all of these things we talk about are... Um, as adults, it takes a lot of reprogramming for us to, like, I think about my own experience with like how I view anger or sadness or all these things. And like, for me to reframe, that's going to take years of work and building to even ever reach a place of probably uh, a healthy understanding of some of those things. But as, as a parent, like, how are you, how do you approach this with a child? Like, are you able and willing to share like, how are you thinking about addressing this with your own son? And like, as a parent myself, like, I'm just curious how I should even be helping my own children as they start to experience emotions as they get older so that they are more healthy adults when they're sitting in this chair someday at my mm -hmm. age that they're in a healthier place than I might be resonating with certain emotions like that. Totally. Like that's, and that was in such a forefront of my mind as I was, you know, building a tiny creature inside of my body. And like, so some of the things that I implemented really early on, and I had to educate my husband and my in-laws who were mostly around my child um, about the ways that we validate feelings, whatever they are you know, instead of like, it's the smallest things like that build this, this skill of, I did it when he was probably two days old and it was a bit overkill. Right. But it created a, um, a habit for me. So instead of when I'm holding him and he's crying and saying, Oh, shh, you're okay. You're okay. Um, I hold him and I say, Oh, 
I wonder if that really startled you. I wonder if you felt scared. Are you feeling hurt? Are you worried? You know, really giving him the emotions that like giving him words for how he's doing. So now he's three years old and he falls a lot and um, he'll look up at me and I'll say, are you hurt or startled? And he'll be like, I think I'm just startled. And so it's this idea of not just taking their pain away because as a parent, you want to scoop them up and say, no, 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 you're okay. I keep you safe. That's my job, you know, and because it is our job, but it's also our job to allow them to feel what they feel in any moment. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, that's a really hard retraining for even like my in-laws who they were raised in a very different generation as were, as was I, you know, there's, um, and they're probably like further along because there's highly compassionate people. But I remember being told, like, if you're going to cry, go to your room. Nobody wants to see that. And like, that yeah. is the most invalidating thing to say to a child of, of your bad feelings are not really what I want to be experiencing right now. And it's like, me neither. Like, <laughs> help me, you know? And so number one, validating a child's feelings rather than trying to like replace it with something else. Like, of course, there are times when they're angry and coping skills are a healthy way to like continue to participate in the world. But stopping before you try to change how they feel and just wondering with them why they feel that way Mm -hmm. and really talking through it rather than jumping straight to a solution. And then the second thing that I do and I coach every single parent to do is to allow your child to see you sad, to see you mad, to see you hurting, to talk about hard things. Um, Obviously within their developmental like appropriateness, but I, you know, oh my gosh, there are days when I'm so sad and I let my son see me cry and he gets to build this like beautiful empathy because he treats me the way I treat him when he cries. He says, Oh mom, are you sad or are you mad? And so I'll get to, you know, see the like real change of a highly compassionate human being built. Mm -hmm. Um, But he wouldn't feel safe as he grows up in this life to show his feelings if I, the most important person self-proclaimed in his life, am not willing to do that. It's a monkey see monkey do. Yeah. It makes you be better Hmm. as an adult. Like it makes you retrain yourself to lean into the sadness because it is going to create something really beautiful in your children. Wow. Well, I have a lot to take home to my kids right now. Um, no, it's interesting, right? I think, I mean, you talk about the intergenerational of your in-laws to you, to your, your child. And I think that that's, it's really easy for us to just go generation by generation and raise our kids the way we were raised and the way their grandparents were raised and great. And like, it just goes on. And obviously there's things that I think every generation we say, Oh, we're not going to be like our parents that way. We're going to change this. Um, but there's also just habits that we build in, right? Like it's kind of mind bending to change your frame of reference on all of those things. And until you hear something that just changes your pattern of behavior, it's really hard to do that and be intentional. Um, and, and it's not easy, right? Like I have a seven and five year old boys 
And they are not easy to take care of sometimes, right? Like all you want to do is say, go to your room right now. And you don't have patience 24 seven. Um, but especially like my five-year-old boy, I think it's really important that like we take the time to allow him to just talk and process through those things. And I'm not good at it most of the time. Right. And like, this is just a great reminder for me personally. And I'm probably getting more from this talking to you than like, (laughs) hopefully our podcast listeners are too, because I'm getting more out of it than I normally do. But it's just so relevant for me to think about how I work with my own kids in that way of just taking the time to ask them questions and treat them like I would treat an adult that I'm talking to on some of that stuff. Um, and and even just like as you were talking, the relevance of it of as adults or as parents, I take it on myself to like teach my kids life skills. I take it on myself to teach them um, school skills right now, like there are all these different things. And yet as, a, as an employer, as someone who's hired people before, and I'll, I've read a lot of research about IQ versus EQ, right? Like emotional intelligence, right? And I would always rather hire someone that has a higher emotional intelligence and train them on the work than the other way around, right? And so as we talk about building and training and equipping our kids for the real world and life, that emotional intelligence is really important to build. And I think what you're talking about is just so relevant to that of creating a a human being that can have compassionate curiosity, that can have a lot of empathy and care for other people, um, and then be able to process and recognize their own experiences and feelings so that they are maybe just a little bit better prepared for when those times of grief come for them. Cause you know that your kids are going to experience grief too, at some point. Um, so I have so many thoughts and epiphanies happening right now, as you can tell, it's just, it's wonderful. And we've talked many times before, but never, um, at this level of these kind of things. And so I'm just really enjoying this. So I appreciate it. You know, even like just, you know, and kind of thinking through like the why, because like the time investment and the emotional investment that you have to make into your child being a compassionate human being and like being in tune with their own feelings and wondering about others, there is a huge time commitment and emotional commitment. And there's a lot of privilege that comes with like being a parent who has the time and space to do that. So I want to recognize that, Mm -hmm. but also in what you said about like, our children are going to experience grief. And what we end up doing in a a lot of times in our culture is parents will just kind of like cross that bridge when they get to it. So I've seen parents who like their teenage daughter loses a dad, loses their dad. And then they, the mom expects that child to talk to them about their sadness and to um, communicate when they're hurting and to like be an open book. That is not the time to teach that skill. And so we're really handicapping our children by not allowing them the small hurts and to work through those small hurts so that when, not if, a big hurt occurs, they have the tools to work through it and they have the relationship with you that they already know that you're their point person. Like you've already established yourself as that. So there's not going to be a question of, can I talk to my mom or dad about this? It's, I'm going to go talk to my mom or dad about this. And that is huge, but you can't do it when it, like when these huge things happen, it's just, there's so much backtracking and repair, especially like brain development wise, like these little 
these little beans are so ready to like learn and connect in their brains, like how to do this. And so the older you are, the harder it is to learn. Is there anything that outside of people that have newborns, that there's hope for people that do have (laughs) teenagers, young adolescents, like to at least start that process? Like what are some things at those ages? Do you have any advice or recommendations around that? All hope is gone. I'm just kidding. be <laughs> terrible. It's like too bad. You've heard this too late. Um, yes, I think the number one thing is modeling. So if you want your child to be open, um, to share emotions, to like wonder with you about your feelings and tell you about theirs, you have to do it first. So you have to get really comfortable with mm-hmm. allowing your child into kind of like your inner world. And if you're someone who's really personal, if you're someone who kind of goes to your room to cry because no one wants to see that, you have to get a little uncomfortable and you have to let yourself do that. So first is modeling. And then the second thing, especially with teens, I always... um kind of refer to it as an open window. So teens are not going to, out of nowhere, if they've never done it before, be like, mom, I'm having a really hard time at school and I'm wondering if we can talk through some solutions, you know? Um, They're not going (laughs) to do that. So, um, you know, think about the times when your child has busy hands. Are they cooking with you? Are they working on a school project? Are they doing something? And just kind of linger about them and provide like support in whatever they're doing. We always say busy hands is an open mouth with um, children and especially adolescents. And so sometimes children will open a window for you. Like they'll crack it for you and they'll say, um, oh, I wish I I wish dad was here to see this thing that we're working on. And in that moment, you have an opportunity to have to offer support, to have a good conversation. And you also have an opportunity to skip by it because you don't have time. And so to be really aware of those windows being open and to use every single opportunity to push it a little further open. And the more times you do that and you build trust and while you're shoving that window open little by little, you're not trying to solve, you're not trying to, um, you know, uh, scold or like they won't get in trouble for this. You're not trying to make it better platitudes, anything like that. You're just with them in the moment with compassionate curiosity. Every time you do that, you're building trust with them. Hmm. It's the same for anybody. Nobody's just going to walk. I mean, no one with boundaries is going to walk up and be like, I'm really hurting today. (laughs) You know, what can we do about that? I think, you know, it, it comes little by little over time. Wow, that's awesome. Um, we're we're starting to get close to the end of being able to record, but I feel like we we talked about this pre-show. We could probably have a four-hour podcast and talk about all of this for a really long time. Maybe because I'm just, I hope, compassionate and really curious myself. Um, but I, I, the reason that we initially started this conversation, and I want to. Um, kind of land the plane around this is we're heading up on the holidays. Um, we're actually recording this right before Thanksgiving. And then when this releases, it'll be prior to Christmas time. And 
I just want to take a few minutes to recognize that um, the holidays have a mix of emotions. There's a lot that people experience around the holidays. Um, holidays can be a really beautiful thing and they can also be a really challenging time for a number of people. Um, and there's oftentimes a lot of grief associated with the holidays. And so I just I wanted to have a conversation with you for a couple of minutes around that and any sort of um, advice that you might have around grief in the holidays, um, and then specifically uh, loneliness in the holidays. And I want to just spend a couple of minutes around kind of that topic in general, and we can take it where we want. Um, but any initial thoughts around that? Yeah, I think the number one um, message that I would want to send is that if you are feeling grief this holiday, and if you are feeling lonely, if somehow the holiday just doesn't feel the same as it used to, you are by far not the only one feeling that. The holidays bring up so many things, whether it is you've experienced a death in your family or you're estranged from your family or your family dynamic has changed. Um, there can be so many reasons why you're feeling sad during the holidays. And it's just probably one of the most normal times to feel sad. It's darker um, it's cold. You're more likely to stay inside and be isolated. Um, and so it's the most normal thing in the world to feel sad and lonely during the holidays, which is not the messaging, right? <laughs> yeah. so you it's get a little gaslit by Hallmark to say like, this is the most <laughs> wonderful time of the year, but only if you are in a place in your life where everything's going perfectly. And that is nobody. Any, um, advice or recommendations for people that are in that place of grief or loneliness in the holidays specifically any sort of um it's it's great for them to know and recognize they're not alone in that like and you're right every i think many of us even if we're at a point like i have kids right now and it's a great time for us to be entering the holidays and really joyful doesn't mean that there isn't grief that i feel in different spaces of people that i wish were there that aren't right um that that still exists and so um I think that's really important to call out, but is there any sort of uh, tangible uh, either? Uh, and again, I'm a doer. I want to fix things, but things that anyone that is experiencing grief um, or that is lonely, that may not have uh, family to be with, like any sort of advice or recommendations. That's all. I know many different things that I just asked, but any sort of just advice around any of that um, for someone that's in that place on what they practically might be able to do. Yeah. So I think, you know, the biggest thing to remember is that you get to pick what this holiday looks like for you. Um, so regardless of why the holiday season is making you feel a certain type of way, um, I always encourage people to kind of come up with a holiday plan. So as we're looking toward um, Christmas um, for, for many or even Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or anything that you might be celebrating in December, um, and the, the traditions that you use, you usually participate in, the people that are usually around you, um, the routines that you typically have, the responsibilities that you take on, every single one of those things is adaptable. And so look, but it's not fair to just um, not tell anybody what you're up to if there are people counting on you. So I always suggest kind of thinking about the holidays ahead of time and figuring out like, what feels good to me today? Like, what do I want this holiday season to look like? 
Um, And there's going to be other factors. Like if you have children, you're obviously going to be more compelled to continue the traditions that make their holidays magical, because if they still have the magic, more power to them. Um, But just making sure that the things you commit to are, they feel good. They jive with where you're at mentally, emotionally, physically, whatever. Once you kind of come up with, okay, this is what I can reasonably um, be expected to do this holiday. It might create some ruffled feathers in the lives of people around you who want you to do the things that you always do or rely on you for certain things. Um, You know, I, for example, have a family who's pretty rigid with traditions. And so if I were to say like, we're not doing this anymore, um, there would need to be further conversation about that. But if I'm in active grief and I'm really not in a good place to communicate that, I always say, find your communicator. Find the person that you can like disclose where you're coming from, your whys of the choices that you made, and then you sick them on everyone else. You know, like if somebody doesn't feel happy about the choices that you've made, you don't always have to be the one to confront that situation. You can find somebody that you rely on to have those conversations for you, like a buffer. Um, And then at any point throughout the holiday season, you're thinking about your plan, you have it all solid, and you're still allowed to dip in or dip out of whatever feels good in the moment. It is okay. And there are, there are likely more holidays ahead. And things can be different next year if you choose for them to be different. But I think giving people back the autonomy to say this feels good or this doesn't feel good Um, can be really empowering because the holidays, like as happy as they're marketed, they are a lot of work and they're a lot of emotional energy. And they also put you in social situations that you might not feel comfortable with, or they might leave you out of social situations that you wish you were a part of. And so really creating some um, empowerment in the creation of this plan is my number one. I don't know if you pre-scripted that, but that was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't. But you know what? I used to run like grief in the holidays seminars at the hospice I worked oh, at. Wow. So this is by no means um, brand new information in yes. my head. It is something that I've really taken with me um, in like, cause everybody wants to know what to do for the holidays. But I also, you know, I was really challenged early on as a grief counselor. When I was running the grief in the holidays, I was a childless, newly married person. And I said, just skip the holidays. And this woman's like, I have children. (laughs) Like, what are you (laughs) talking about? You know? So really being able to say like, you get to pick and you set the stage However that looks, but also keeping in mind, like as a parent, you still want your child to have what you best case scenario had when you were little. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Well, I am super grateful for you and you taking the time to be on today. Uh, As we wrap up, is there anything that you want to... um, give a shameless plug to you. I always just kind of leave an open space for anyone who's on here, um, something that they want to say uh, about themselves, about the work they do or where they'd want to direct the audience from here. I don't know. I think <laughs> <laughs> I am coming off of a couple months of the most hectic 
stressful but highly purposeful like set of events um we just had this huge grief symposium that we put on for ERC Pathlight with so many community partners um and that just happened um but I think if you have any interest in learning more about grief or um I guess ERC Pathlight you could visit their website and sign up for their email list so that you are in tuned with all of the grief stuff coming up for the new year. I do have some things up my sleeve that um I'm really excited to start um convincing people to do with me. Um but otherwise I think um I don't know. I don't know what else to plug that doesn't <laughs> feel good. No, that's awesome. And I will say too, it's interesting because uh, I obviously get all of ERC's emails and we're super grateful for the partnership with ERC. And we got to provide one of the presenters even for that grief symposium, uh, Vic, whose story's already been shared on our platform. Um, so he got to share part of his story with you. And uh, I will say when I first signed up, I was like, well, I don't have an eating disorder. I don't like this isn't relevant to me, but there's so much work that you all do as an organization that goes beyond just um, one narrow focus. And I think that that was something that um, as someone who might be listening to this, if you're listening, there is so much work that uh, Pathlight and ERC are doing that um, may be relevant at different times of your life. But even uh, the symposium around grief, there was a lot of relevance that wasn't necessarily just around eating recovery um, that was really relevant to a lot of different walks of life. So I highly recommend that. The the last thing I will say um, or ask uh, as we wrap up is, and this is usually the last question that I ask, as you have just, you've given so much great advice and it's very much been uh, for the most part, specifically around grief. But as you know, only seven seconds, our mission is really around addressing loneliness. And I just want to hear if you have any final thoughts or advice or recommendations of people that are... Um, in a place right now of experiencing loneliness, um, whether that is around grief or something else, do you have any advice or recommendations um, or things that you would want to say to someone who is experiencing loneliness right now? Yeah, I think, you know, my main message, if you are feeling lonely or if you're going through a grief journey is to reach out. Um, more likely than not, you're not the only one who is going through something similar. And there is so much power in community. I would recommend finding a support system, whether that be natural supports in your life where you can go out on a limb and allow them to support you. You know, if you don't give them the opportunity to support you, the answer will always be no because you haven't asked. Um, but if you don't have social supports that you feel comfortable confiding in, you can always find, thankfully, virtual support groups that have just boomed in the last three years. Um, Pathlight and ERC run free virtual support groups on a weekly basis. Um, other organizations um, that do mental health support, grief support, um, anything like that to really find a network of people so that you even if you don't talk in these groups, just to listen to other people's experiences can really normalize what you're going through and alleviate your loneliness just a little bit. 
That's perfect. That is so great. Well, Kaylee, thank you so much for being on. I am super grateful for your friendship and partnership and just all of your wisdom today. I know that uh, I'm going to have my wife listen to this once it goes out. um, And we're going to have some really good conversation around this. um, And it'll even be really fun to take some of this stuff home to my kids tonight and be able to have some more meaningful conversations. So thank you. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, have a great day and everyone else stay tuned for our next episodes and have a great holidays. Thank you for listening to the I Know Lonely podcast. I hope that you were inspired by Kaylee's and my conversation. And I hope that these holidays, you feel a little bit less lonely and inspired to connect with someone in your life. As we enter the holiday season, we're running a year-end giving campaign for Only 7 Seconds. If you like listening to these episodes and you like the work that Only 7 Seconds does, please consider supporting us by donating towards our year-end giving campaign on Only7Seconds.com. And as always, you can find us on social media at Only 7 Seconds. And please give us a rate, review, and follow on whatever podcast platform you're using. Happy holidays.